Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and as you can probably hear if I go closer and closer to the microphone, um, I've had a bit of a cold for the last week so that's why there was no um, podcast last week. Uh, I've been dying with the flu and I was basically in bed the whole time. Still able to write and still able to cause trouble but uh, basically didn't have the energy or the voice to go give me a podcast last week so I apologise for that. But I can tell you that uh, I will be making it up to you this week. There was an interview booked for today that's now been put off uh, till tomorrow on the fascinating subject of creativity with a person who's grabbed more headlines than uh, perhaps any other person I know. So uh, that'll be coming at you later in the week. But uh, I didn't want to wait because today is Monday. It is the 8th, 9th, 10th of February. And Ireland has just gone through an election which has been remarkable on many, many fronts. And I want to go through some of the things that I've discovered and some of the things I've heard and some of the things that I have seen over this weekend. Full disclosure, last year I was asked by the Social Democrats to consider running as a European candidate. I went into a selection convention against Gary Gannon, who ran as a TD, uh, as a candidate for uh, the Dáil in Dublin Central. Gary still hasn't been elected or anything else like that. But anything I say, uh, take that into account as you listen to it, because I am going to be talking about bias and I am going to be talking about uh, how that influences how we report on various different things, right? Um, the, one of the f- big failures, if you if you ask me, has been this whole idea of you know the, the political correspondence and the political class, and everybody saying that they never never saw this coming. And I've been saying this since probably before the election started. That to me is an enormous failure of journalism. It is you should never be surprised by what happens in an election. You should never be surprised by what happens in an election. And one of the only pieces I saw uh, in the election that actually went among the people and avoid the politicians at all costs was by Jennifer O'Connell in the Irish Times where she travelled around Ireland and she went to you know all sorts of different places from men's sheds in Ramsgrange County Wexford to you know local events coffee mornings that kind of thing speaking to normal people because they are the people who decide elections not spin doctors not politicians and certainly not journalists the ordinary people who go out and vote and it is absolutely essential to talk to them before anything happens and this is why we have a situation where some of the great people that you've seen commentating uh, over the weekend on TV Justine McCarthy in particular is very good his hand was fantastic there's been uh, an awful lot of men on there who probably weren't as good but you can almost see the difference between those who have been out and about and talking to people real people people outside their own social class or advertising group or marketing group or that kind of thing talking to them reading, listening uh, taking account of what they have to say and those who couldn't find their way beyond Kildare Street or the hotels or the Shelburne Hotel or the the Claire, whatever the hell it's called now, right? The the level of commentary has been totally, totally different. So you get um, inside-out commentary from people whose only sources are within the political parties themselves, and then you get outside-in, which is very, very, very almost unique because there's so few people actually doing it. And Jennifer O'Connell deserves great credit for actually having done that. Another thing that's worth pointing out is when you listen to all these people talk, right? If you look at the people who've been elected in this uh, general election in Ireland, Sinn Féin are the biggest party. Uh, not by far, by only a matter of a few percent, right? If they'd run more candidates, they probably wouldn't, would have won more seats, etc., etc. But that is also a very, very tired thing. They didn't expect it. They only realised it was about two weeks to go. It was too late to uh, to add any more candidates that they could probably win a whole lot more, right? But listen to the accents of the people that they are electing 
and listen to the accents of the people interviewing them or talking about them. So the accents of Sinn Féin's activists, of their candidates, of their parliamentary representatives in Dublin, in you know around the country, up in Donegal or whatever, these are the accents of ordinary people. They're the accents of working class people. Uh, there's a couple of people who are very, very well educated, but they, you know, they come from working class areas. They come from Dublin Southwest, from Clondalkin, from Talla, from uh, the city centre, <clears throat> that kind of thing, right? But the people who are interviewing them. The people who are pontificating about their performance of what they should and should not do and what they should and should not consider all tend to have the, the slightly more uh, accents that you would connect, I suppose, with more privileged parts of Dublin City or more privileged parts of the country, right? And that, uh, on its own, highlights an absolutely huge problem in Irish journalism, right? We do not have people in Irish journalism anymore or we certainly have very, very few people who have come from a working class background. I brought this up in the podcast before, right? Um, it's a problem when all of society does not see itself represented, especially in public service. But it's also a problem when journalism goes from being a trade, from being something that working class people could aspire to, to being a professional, which is something from for the middle classes and for the upper classes to aspire to. When that happens, we immediately eliminate an entire class of people. And this election was very, very much about class. We immediately eliminate an entire class of people from the commentary. We don't see their perspective. We don't hear their perspective. We don't see the interpretation of what it is that they stand for. We don't see any sort of uh, inclusive or, or discursive commentary about what it is that has put them in the position that they are in. And it also leads to a situation where we say, oh, we don't understand. We don't know why this is happening because people never spoke to them. They don't know what's important to them. They don't know anything about them. So in excluding the working class from being part of the media, we're also doing ourselves a disservice because we literally don't know what working class people think. And that is something that has been brought about by the fact that you know now increasingly in journalism, you end up having to work for three months, six months, for a year on an internship, maybe copy editing or sub editing or doing something for your local newspaper for free. And Ireland is not the kind of place that as an adult or as a student that you can live in for free. You want to get out from under the clutches or uh, you know you want to get out from under your parents roof you want to establish yourself and that kind of thing none of that can be done on a salary of zero euros and zero cents every month right so that then becomes the preserve of people who can afford to do these interminable insert internships in the media business right and it becomes a survival of the fittest it becomes those who can wait it out longest and those who do are invariably people uh, of the you know for the higher of higher socioeconomic status and in doing so then that sort of it adds to the hamster wheel of the journalism and the commentary that we get at the moment where people literally can't understand what it is that has been going on uh, in the election cycle so we have no understanding whatsoever of why so many people in so many parts of the country vote Sinn Féin because no journalists come from there there's nobody that we can turn to and say and we're not inclined to ask them because not only do they not have journalists coming from there they don't even have sources coming from there right you go back as a journalist you will always go back to your own social class to maybe your school class or your university class and you will end up depending on where, like where you come from if you come from the upper middle class or if you come from an upper class background or middle class background you will almost always end up talking to people exactly like you right if you went to certain schools in dublin your the guy you went to school with or the girl you went to school with is not a welder or a bus driver or somebody who works uh, as a midwife right they are people who work in marketing communications they're people who work in pr they're people who work for political parties they are people who are you know entrepreneurs who started companies and that kind of thing and that's not to say that working class people don't do these things but what i'm saying to you is try 
go try to find working class people or entrepreneurs who've made something of themselves in life and are actually brought out and rolled out and asked what they think of that. And that has been a huge thing that has been lacking in this for me, right? Another one of the things that has been there you know, almost offensive uh, in terms of Irish media, right? I mean, I usually refer to Iceland. Iceland's about 330,000 people where basically they play a game of music, musical chairs between, you know, the captains of industry, uh, the parliamentarians and the people in the media, right? But in Ireland, we have a situation as well where we have massive, massive conflicts of interest which are not disclosed to the general public, right? So aside from the problem of journalists, you know, upper middle class or middle class journalists moving over and uh, taking jobs with political parties as political advisors or as media advisors or whatever else like that, right? We also have a situation where people are getting involved with you know ex-classmates with you know people are getting involved in relationships with people who work for the political parties right and these things are never revealed to the general public so we had a situation where somebody working for independent newspapers was out canvassing with I don't know if it was um the former housing minister, if it was Leo Varadkar or whatever, I think it was the CIO of the uh, independent newspapers, but don't quote me on that. But, you know, there are pictures apparently of him out canvassing for the Fine Gael political party. That is not okay, okay? You cannot take a media organisation seriously when those are the kinds of things that are happening, right? You can absolutely have a situation whereby... You know, journalists and people in the media absolutely should not be banned from taking part in the democratic process. They're a vital part of the democratic process and they are entitled to have an opinion and they are entitled to be biased and they are entitled to see the world in a certain way. But your readers and your listeners and your viewers are also entitled to know if you are formally involved or engaged with people from the party political apparatus, right? So that means having to tell people if your dad was a TT. It means having to tell people if your sister is a political advisor to a minister or if your brother happens to be sitting on the opposition benches, right? Because readers and listeners and viewers have to be able, they have to be provided with the information to make up their minds as to whether or not what you are saying is credible or not. And we do not have a situation in Ireland at the moment where that happens. Instead, we either have the assumption that everybody knows who I am, therefore they can take everything I say with a pinch of salt, or you have people deliberately trying to cover these things up, or deliberately trying to play down the relationships that they have to people in power, right? There's nothing to be ashamed of if somebody in your family is in a political party. There's nothing to be ashamed of, you know, if you yourself happen to work for a minister or whatever else like that. That's exactly the kind of thing we're trying to get away from. But acting like you're ashamed of it and acting like it doesn't make any difference to your coverage or how you do these things is, you know, that that's where it starts to get dodgy, right? I'll go back to the very start of this podcast. I mentioned the fact that uh, the Social Democrats approached me and asked if I might be interested in running uh, for, for Europe for them. And I thought about it. I haven't lived in Ireland for 20 years, but, you know, obviously I follow Irish politics very, very closely. Uh, what happens in Irish politics, you know, even though I don't have a vote and haven't had it for a long time, it affects me very, very deeply because very basically all my family still lives there. My niece and nephew, both of whom are under 10 years of age, they live there. My brothers and sister live there. My parents who are pensioners live there. So everything that happens in Irish politics, whether I have a vote or not, affects me, right? So the Social Democrats said to me, would you be interested in running for Europe? And I said yes. I wound up in a selection convention against Gary Gannon. I didn't win that selection convention, right? But the first thing that I had to do, even before I said yes to uh, the Social Democrats, to even consider having my name put forward for that, was I had to approach the editors that I have freelancer stringer contracts with and say to them, I am considering doing this. 
Is that going to affect the work that I do for you? Is it going to affect your view of me? Is it going to affect, you know, whatever happens? Certain people said no, because, you know, what the work, kind of work you do for us is outside the sphere of European or Irish politics. Other people said, yes, we'd rather you didn't write for us. I had a self-imposed moratorium of six months where I didn't do anything, pretty much, for Irish media that had anything to do with Ireland or European politics. In certain instances, when I was asked uh, to go on the radio about things like homelessness and that kind of thing, for stuff that I had discovered, not my opinions about it, but stuff and people that I'd interviewed, uh, I'd gone on but most of that happened beforehand but for the most part I brought that upon myself because I didn't feel that it would be credible to be in consideration for you know running for a European seat for an Irish political party and then doing the same thing you know going out the back door and in the front door and writing on the front pages or the political pages about things of which I was I, like I had a sort of an, a, not an inexcusable bias but an absolutely undeniable bias about right now again if you look at the social democrats themselves and one of the reasons that I like the party and that I was happy to be associated with them is the fact that they look at those things and they, they are entirely anti-corruption that way they're entirely for openness and for these things to be played out in the open and that's one of those things that I appreciate most about them so that's why I did what I did now after six months or so I said to myself right well I'm not likely to run for them in election at any time in the near future I haven't renewed my membership in the party and I probably won't at this stage because I don't see myself doing it so therefore I feel that after that six months of self-imposed quarantine that I can go back to writing for media outlets about it and that's a different thing from writing on my own Twitter account or my own blog or indeed on this podcast because I would assume that people take me at my word here and I'm always open to anybody questioning anything that I have to say either publicly or privately about these things so you know like self-publication that uh, issue is not what I would count as sort of a media business but you know if you're being published by the Irish Times or being asked to go on and comment on you know Fine Gael's European election strategy uh, by RTE that's something I didn't feel that I was able to do but at this stage that uh, that whole thing is sort of behind me so um, that was one of the things that um, it, it has really sort of irked me over the last few days um, so, you know, that is the thing about, I mean, it's ultimately, you know, I've seen uh, when you have a sort of a, a situation in Sweden here, for instance, where you have what it says in the papers, where people are going through the headlines of what it says in the papers, still to this day, they will tell you what the political affiliation of a newspaper is. So they will say, this is a social democratic newspaper. Uh, this is an independent liberal liberal newspaper, which means that they support liberal politics, but not the liberal party. So all of those things would be taken into account. So these things are worn on your sleeve. So bias is not, you know, it, it doesn't disappear. But when you understand, when you wear that on your sleeve, because so much commentary over the weekend, in particular from independent newspapers and from News Talk, has been so horrifically biased, right? Mostly due to the fact that, you know, you don't need to tell people what to write. You just need to hire people who think like you do. And they will ensure that your editorial line goes through from beginning to end, right? So they've had these, you know, it's been a terrible sense of bitterness about a lot of the stuff that's been written in the Irish Independent because they so viscerally hate Sinn Féin. And to see Sinn Féin doing so well, that really sticks in their craw. And they can't actually give any sort of objective analysis about it, right? So they're still paying their big guns to talk about these things, but they're not giving you any sort of objective analysis about the whole thing. And the unfortunate thing is that they're not looking outside of their, their usual coterie to, to try to understand. This would be a perfect situation for somebody to contact a journalist in Donegal and to ask about Pierce Doherty or to ask about, you know, what's happening in Dublin Midwest. Find somebody who works for a local newspaper there and ask why this has happened. Because if your own people aren't capable of explaining it, then, you know, how are you going to do it? You know, you're doing them a disservice by not doing it. We'll move on from there to um, the international perspective on the Irish election. And I have to say it's been both pitiable and laughable to see what's been written and what's been said um, 
on a macro level by you know everybody from John Simpson of the BBC to the New York Times that kind of thing the utterly utterly lazy commentary I saw one pre-election piece by SVT the state TV broadcaster here in Sweden and it was the most appalling piece of trash I've ever read uh, a person obviously sitting uh, googling and you know coming up with a couple of things claiming that Leo Varadkar uh, drove the process of repealing the Eighth Amendment when in fact he turned up uh, you know as the crowd was beginning to applaud repeal he did absolutely nothing over the course of his political career to advance the repealing of the Eighth Amendment uh, it completely stripped those who actually the activists who actually did deliver the repeal of the Eighth Amendment uh, of any sort of agency whatsoever and it was just appalling and the idea now the 10 million Swedes who paid taxes for this public service have been so let down by their public service broadcaster it's just you know it's it's horrific really and you know but for the most part people don't care Ireland is a small uh, we always hear it's a small open economy on the outskirts of Europe and that kind of thing but I still think that okay it's one thing if you decide not to cover what happens in an election like Ireland I would have said that Ireland is a canary in the coal mine in more ways than one uh, in one way it is the most important UK partner in terms of Brexit it is the country that has been most in focus uh, due to Brexit or the EU country that's been most in focus due to Brexit but Brexit has also not been an issue in the election why is that? Why aren't political correspondents, especially international ones, explaining why that is? Why did SVT, in their lamest of lame articles, not explain the housing crisis, the homelessness crisis, and the crisis in the health service that were behind the rise of Sinn Féin, instead going, one idea may be the border, which is about the laziest piece of journalism I've ever seen in my life, right? So, you know, you either do one or the other, either ignore the thing completely and say it's only a small country and nobody cares, or do the job right. There's no halfway house. There's no, I will throw a few words at this because you know people expect us to have something that is absolutely you may as well not bother if that's the kind of journalism that you're going to do right as i speak to you it is just after lunch central european time and uh, there's no government formed uh, mary lou mcdonald is saying that she's uh, she would like to form a government without finna fall finna gale finna gale are saying that they won't go into government uh, with Sinn fein which is the equivalent of getting you know saying you're going to leave a nightclub right after you got thrown out uh, Fianna Fáil have obviously U-turned immediately on the lies that they told that they wouldn't go into government with Sinn Féin and now they're saying oh but of course we would you know which is it, it boggles the mind that a, con- a party that could bankrupt the country and lies repeatedly and pathologically is still a political force you have to wonder about the kind of people who would vote for that kind of idiocy but that's where we are at the moment but one of the points that I've been making as well uh, over the last while I've been saying that Sinn Féin would be mad to go into government as a junior partner with, uh, with Fianna Fáil in any way or any party would be mad to go in as a junior partner and why is that right small parties get punished the Green Party punished Labour almost destroyed now in fairness they've contributed an awful lot to their own downfall over the last while uh, by, by just sort of you know becoming the most right wing Labour movement that anybody has ever seen anywhere but um the reason that they get destroyed is not because they go into coalition. The reason that they get destroyed is because they sell out their voters, right? So if you can manage to go into coalition and not sell out your core principles, then there's every chance that the Irish electorate would actually reward you. And I think that that's the way that Mary Lou and Sinn Féin are probably looking at it at the moment, right? They're saying that if we go in there and we say, no, Fianna Fáil, the price for government is the full implementation of Sláinte Care. It is a border poll. It is the building of 100,000 social, social houses. Not 100,000 units brought to market, not 100,000 co-living spaces, but 100,000 uh, social houses brought to market, or whatever it was they split, way they split it up in their manifesto, because that is what their people have voted for. Now, if they manage to deliver that, they can go back to their electorate 
and the electorate as a whole in one year, in three years or four years or whenever this happened and they can say, we went into coalition with Fianna Fáil and we delivered the things that we said we would deliver. And once they do that, once they can do that without fear or favour, everybody knows that, uh, you know, we tell the story of the frog and the scorpion where the scorpion looks for a lift across the river on the back of the frog and the frog says, well, you know, if I do that, you'll only sting me. And the scorpion goes, no, 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 I promise I won't, I promise I won't, you know, because the two of us will just drown. And the frog uh, gives the scorpion a lift across the river and as it's swimming across the river, the scorpion stings it. And then uh, the two of them are just about to drown and the frog says, you know, uh, you know, why did you do that when you know the two of us are going to drown? And the scorpion said, it's in my nature. And that is the nature of Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil's only principle is that they should always be in power and that it should always be kept to the greatest extent possible for themselves. They have literally no guiding principles whatsoever. They have gone from being the freest of free market uh, economy uh, proponents to claiming to be centre-left and claiming to be so. They literally do not care. All that matters to them is power. That's good in one way because the fact that, you know, the influence of Sinn Féin could bring them back more towards the centre, right? This idea that they're a centre-right party, they're not, and they haven't been for a long time. They have been a right-wing party for a long, long time in terms of how they have opened up everything and sold out everything, absolutely everything that could possibly be sold in Ireland, right? But that could be tempered by if Sinn Féin can bring them back towards the middle. So Sinn Féin could actually reap the spoils of that a little bit later. The Social Democrats, I would imagine, you know, they're going to do what they do. The price will be care. the price will be social housing, the price will be... Uh, you know, advancing the cause, following the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, those kinds of things. You know, but you know, there's a lot of independent party, a lot of independent candidates out there. There's a lot of uh, people from the Greens. The Greens are still one of those parties who, in Ireland and in other places in Europe, they haven't realised that to deal with the environmental issue, you've got to have something to say about capitalism, and they've invo- avoided saying that like the plague until now. But that's one of those dawning realisations that's going to come up for them. So it's going to be an interesting time, and indeed, there will be further podcasts a little bit later on in the week on that subject as will there be a podcast with that interview but that's all about all i've got for you right now please do get in touch engage on twitter uh, and that kind of thing and i shall talk to you again in the very very near future Uh, have a good day wherever you're going to be